Okay, the call part one. So, as Bruce Tim has mentioned uh, many times, particularly on the uh, the interviews, which are the special features uh, on this DVD, the call sort of served as a dry run for the Justice League series he ended up doing afterwards. He had always been hesitant about doing a Justice League series because he knew it was going to be a lot of work. He knew that balancing that many characters in an action sequence would be difficult. He knew that servicing all the, that many characters in terms of character development would be difficult. And he knew that the series would pose many other challenges, and he was right, as he says. But this sort of this episode was sort of served to prove to him that it could be done and could be done well. But nonetheless, there were many things in this episode that he wasn't completely happy with that he resolved to never make those same mistakes again when he later did Justice League. So here we see Metropolis of the Future, and you could be forgiven at first for thinking it wasn't the future, because Metropolis of the Future looks almost exactly like Metropolis of the Present. Barda apparently likes putting her name on big rocks that are outside the headquarters. Uh, Metropolis of the Future looks almost exactly like Metropolis of the Present. Uh, I don't know whether that's intentional, uh, because perhaps they didn't have the time or the energy to design a completely new series, a uh, completely new city, I should say. <clears throat> or if it's just because Metropolis is kind of supposed to be the city of tomorrow already, and so the idea was that it wouldn't have changed very much. It's interesting that uh, the civilians outside refer to the building as the Watchtower. Uh, that name, of course, stemming from Grant Morrison's run on the comic, and it's a name that they obviously ended up using again in Justice League for the Orbital uh, Headquarters. Here, um, it's used to describe the building, which, as we see later in uh, Justice League Season 5, is more accurately called the Metro Tower. Uh, but perhaps the, the Orbital Watchtower doesn't exist anymore, and so the Earth-based uh, Headquarters kind of adopted the name by default. Uh, it's all obviously retroactive trying to explain that, but it could uh, there could be any number of explanations. This is also the first use of the term Justice League Unlimited. Here in the future, the team itself is referred to as Justice League Unlimited, whereas if you were to watch the series Justice League Unlimited, although the series is called that, the team itself is never referred to as the JLU within the context of the show. It's just a name for the show. Like, you know, Ghostbusters Extreme don't actually refer to themselves as the Ghostbusters Extreme. That's just a name for the show. Whereas here, the team actually refers to itself as the JLU. Micron here is basically the Silver Age Atom, the Ray Palmer Atom. Uh, but, you know, in the future. And also, he can grow, which obviously Ray Palmer could not do. And in that sense, he's kind of a mixture of the Atom and Giant Man, a Marvel Comics hero who, interestingly enough, was himself first called Ant-Man because he was very small and, you know, rode ants. So it all sort of comes back around. Uh, Micron, as we see here, is black, um, played by Wayne Brady, probably best known uh, is a comedian and, you know, all-around entertainer, probably best known from Whose Line Is It Anyway and his own short-lived uh, series. And I believe he even had a talk show. Did he have a talk show after that? I don't know. Didn't last very long. 
So we start off here with basically, you know, another day at the office for Terry, taking down ink for like the 25th time. No mention is made of how she reconstituted herself after Inkling, or what happened to her uh, daughter that we saw for the first time in that episode. There's Superman, you can pick him up from the jaw alone. Now, um, sort of, I have two minds whether to get into this now or in part two, but a flaw with this episode when you watch it through after having seen both parts is if Superman is the traitor, which of course we know him to be because he's being controlled by Starro, why does he bring Batman into the League? Now, at this point, you think he's bringing Batman into the League to ferret out the traitor, but he's the traitor. So, okay, you might say, well, maybe Superman doesn't know he's the traitor. In other words, Starro controls him sometimes, but the rest of the time he's not aware of it, and he's just a plain old Superman, and he wants to get to the bottom of what's going on because he doesn't remember what he does when he's evil. But that can't be it, because in Part 2, he doesn't know, when, when Starro's taken off of him, he doesn't know where he is or what's happening, so he obviously has no memory of what happened while he had Starro on him. Therefore, Starro's been controlling him, is, is in control of his actions 24-7, and he has no reason to bring Batman in. The only way you could look at it is, well, I guess there's two ways. Either it's his, you know, the old cliche of Superman's true self shining through despite Starro's influence, or he wants to bring Batman in because it kind of shifts suspicion to him and takes the other members' eyes off of him. I suppose it could go either way. Now, Superman here is voiced by Christopher McDonald, who played Jor-El, not by Tim Daly, who, play, who played Superman, obviously, in Superman the Animated Series. Uh, Bruce Tim himself doesn't quite recall why they chose to recast him, perhaps because they felt Tim Daly's voice lacked the sort of gravelly nature that Christopher McDonald brings to it, and as such probably wouldn't serve an older Superman. I'm not so sure that's true. I think the continuity of performance would serve the episode more than a slightly gravelier Superman, but doesn't make much difference at this point. Uh, the idea was that Superman's kind of become more like his father. You can see in his costume is, is much more Kryptonian in nature with the little bits running up the arms there and the uh, predominance of black. In fact, it shares some design elements with the Kingdom Come Superman and to my eye actually shares quite a few design elements with the so-called electric blue Superman of the, uh, of the 1990s. And here we're introduced to the Justice League of the Future. Big Barda, voiced by Farrah Fork, uh, best known from Wings, where she acted alongside Tim Daly, ironically enough. Uh, Barda's outfit here is quite different than the one we see her wearing in The Ties That Bind, the, uh, the JLU episode. But both outfits come from the comics. This, is the kind, this kind of bikini episode is what she wears you know, around the office. And the armor is what she, you know, dons when she's going into battle, although we don't see her doing so in this episode. We see her go through that change in the ties that bind. Then we have Warhawk here. Now, obviously, after having seen uh, the JLU two part of the Once and Future thing, we know that Warhawk, we, we know, you know, his parentage and so on. Uh, at this point, we didn't know any of that, obviously, because this aired before they even knew they were doing a Justice League series. So all we know about Warhawk is that he's got kind of a hawk motif. Uh, we'll get back to that in a second. Here Superman says something kind of strange, which is that he, that uh, Micron has 
I believe the term he used is severe cellular damage or something like that. I didn't know you could get cellular damage from being in a train wreck, but apparently, you know, this is the future, so, you know, what the hell. Um, so back to what I was saying, all we know about Warhawk here is that he's got kind of a Hawk Fanagarian design motif, and he's kind of an ass. Um, after this episode aired, people were sort of conjecturing, you know, okay, is Hawk the future, uh, Warhawk, I should say, the future version of some character from the comics, or is he a new character, or whatever. People were saying, you know, is he Hawkman, or is he maybe Hawkman's son? Is he Hawk from Hawk and Dove? Is he, uh, the only, the only use of the name Warhawk in any, any other medium is actually, uh, Alan Moore of, of Watchmen fame wrote a story proposal for a crossover he was planning on writing called Twilight of the Superheroes. It didn't end up getting made, but the story treatment found its way onto the internet. And in it, he described a new character named Warhawk, who was kind of like a big tank, who was like a Rambo-type superhero who his teammates would throw into battle so he could do the most damage and, and was kind of expendable. So the, the fact that Warhawk here is so aggressive and so on is it perhaps owes some uh, some of its heritage to that, but more likely they just thought they could do kind of a futuristic Hawkman kind of guy and coincidentally named him Warhawk. We also see here Green Lantern, obviously not John Stewart, but Kai Rowe. Uh, this Green Lantern looks almost identical to the character designs used in Nanda Parabat in the JLU episode Dead Reckoning. Uh, perhaps retroactively they decided that they should uh, draw all the monks like that so as to hint to us that Cairo is from Nanda Parabat or, or what, I don't know, but uh, the design similarity is there. It took me several viewings to notice that the screen of Aquagirl goes out behind Terry there, but he doesn't notice. Uh, Aquagirl herself is a bit of a mystery because she's theoretically Aquaman's daughter, but given that we know that in the present from Justice League, Aquaman has an infant son, and we know that he's, you know, no spring chicken himself, based on his character design and, and Scott Rummel's performance, he looks like he's at least in his 30s or, or 40s. Uh, so the idea that 50 years in the future, you know, he would have a 17 or 18-year-old daughter is a little strange. Maybe Atlanteans age slowly, but what's more likely to my mind, retroactively, is that Aquagirl is actually Aquaman's granddaughter, that perhaps uh, Aquaman's son that we see in uh, The Enemy Below goes on to become the second Aquaman, and that's the Aquaman that Bruce pulls up a picture of on the Batcave computer. That's the Aquaman that went missing, uh, and that she's his daughter. Perhaps uh, Arthur's son eclipses him as Aquaman, and that's why Bruce's computer just labels him as Aquaman and not Aquaman 2 or whatever. Uh, that's my little way of explaining that, but it could work any number of ways. Barda here has her Mega Rod, which is straight from the comics. Barda, of course, is, was created by Jack Kirby, along with all the other Fourth World characters, Mr. Miracle, Orion, Darkseid, Calabac, so many others. They were going to use Wonder Woman as a member of the Future League, but there was some weird rights issue where she could appear in a series if she was a regular, but they couldn't use her as a guest star. So they, given that Barda was a member of the League in the comics at the time, again, under Grant Morrison, they went with her as a replacement. It works just as well. It would have been cool to see uh, Wonder Woman there in the future, but they worked Barda in there, and that led to a repeat appearance, so it worked out well. The Watchtower here is pretty futuristic-looking. Ironic, as I said, given that most of the rest of Metropolis looks pretty much the same. 
Um, I wonder if, uh, as happened in the comics, that over the years the League incorporated alien technology into the Watchtower. In the comics, uh, the League's headquarters incorporates Kryptonian, Martian, Thanagarian, even uh, Apocalyptian, Apocalyptian. I always have trouble with that. And uh, New Genesian technology at uh, one time or another, and perhaps the same thing happened along here in the in the series. After all, they had to get those transporters from JLU somewhere, so it probably came from alien technology. The Watchtower is quite an alien design overall, as a matter of fact. One thing I neglected to mention earlier, um, here Batman's, here you see Bruce working on uh, an old Batmobile from Batman the Animated Series. It looks, at least it looks that way in the long shot. A couple of things I didn't mention earlier. Uh, when Superman first appears to Terry, you hear Superman's theme, but it's kind of dark, twisted, and off-key, uh, perhaps foreshadowing there. Another thing I didn't mention was that the uh, tension between Bruce and Clark when they meet up again after you know however long makes sense if you've just seen Superman the Animated Series, where they are pretty much at odds in World's Finest and Nighttime and so on. But makes less sense after you've seen... Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, where by the end they were really, really close and good friends. Uh, you can retroactively explain it by saying perhaps they had some falling out along the way. My little pet theory at the time was that maybe uh, as Bruce was starting to get together with Diana, something went awry on a mission and, uh, and she died or, or something, and uh, he holds the League and Superman in particular responsible for that. I don't know. I'm less inclined to believe that now, but that was my thinking at the time. The shot where the League flies in to save the city there was reused in the pilot, so-called pilot for Justice League, the little short uh, pilot reel they put together to sell the show to, to the network. Uh, they just subbed in the, the present League members for the future League members, but used the same staging and music. You can see it as a bonus feature on the uh, Justice League Season 1 DVD set. It's fun to compare the similarities. There's a lot of great little action bits in here. I love Superman putting out the fires by uh, by creating a, a huge rush of air by clapping his hands together. And I love the shot after he hears the second wave of explosions and just zips off along, uh, skimming along the, the surface of the water. It's a great shot. Now, <laughs> you'd think that by holding up a ship like that at one point along the bottom, it would just crack in half, but it's always been a problem with uh, super strength. That's a great shot. Same thing here. I mean, he's holding up the building with the glass. He's <laughs> The glass is supporting, like, thousands and thousands of tons. It's like, okay. I mean... The glass breaks everywhere but where he's holding it. Oh, whatever. I wonder if Warhawk's armor is supposed to be, you know, all this is retroactive, of course, but I wonder if Warhawk's armor was supposed to retroactively realize it was nth metal. Uh, it seems to have some interesting properties, like it expands around him in a, in a couple minutes here. And um, apparently strong enough to protect him from an explosion.
the idea uh, apparently was to have, like I said, Superman become more like his father, Jor-El, and have him be like darker and and more detached. But I think that doesn't really play once you know that it's Starro controlling Superman the whole time. Although uh, later on, after he's himself again, and he has that line where he's burying Terry under the ice to save the world and says he knew what he was getting into and so on. I can talk about that more in part two, but... I think this episode in many ways is actually hurt by the existence of Justice League as a series because a lot of the characterization in this episode is contingent upon the interplay between Batman and Superman, or, sorry, Bruce and, and Clark to be more specific, from Superman the Animated Series and Batman the Animated Series. And the, if, once you've seen them be all pally through five seasons of Justice League, a lot of this can seem like a step back in that sense. Uh, and in fact, there's one moment later on where I think that the episode would be uh, improved upon considerably with the retroactive insertion of a little shot uh, to to play up some of that added history between the characters, but I'll mention that when we get there. The interesting thing is that here, of course, Terry's the rookie, but uh, now here's the problem. When, when does Warhawk get out of his armor? Because, okay, he's there. Right? He grabs the missile. He covers himself in the armor. So he's, you know, he's not getting out now. He's friggin' sealed in. And he's still there. He's still there. We can see him. Okay, now he's out of sight. No, now he's waving. And boom. So, like, did he, like, strip down to his skivvies and, like, leap off the thing? Or, I don't know. Bruce Tim himself admits it's a total cheat, which it is. Bam. But it's worth it for that awesome shot of the the armor, the 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 helmet hitting the the windshield of the Batmobile. I had that spoiled for me actually, and I could have killed the guy who did it because that's just such an awesome shot, and you'd never see it coming in a in a cartoon. Interesting, if you're playing a drinking game while watching this episode, take a swig every time Barda says to Terry, what did you do? Because she says it like four times. Now, also retroactively, something that... Okay, well, here's the thing. Bruce is able to zoom around, like rotate the camera here to... It's like he's looking at the Batmobile recording of the missile. Okay, fine. But then he tells the computer to rotate, and he zooms in on Superman standing in a building on the, in the opposite direction. I don't know of too many cameras that can do that, unless the Batmobile is recording a full 360-degree view of like a mile in every direction, like a hologram of it. Otherwise, I don't see how he could rotate the camera. But, uh, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, the other thing about this episode is there's only six or seven leaguers. Now, after JLU... This is another way in which it's heard after watching JLU. There's like 60. So are we only seeing a small group here and there's like dozens of other members out there somewhere that just aren't in this episode? Because you think it would be all hands on deck with a, you know, evil Superman. Or did they all die or did a lot of them retire? You think that the threats would only get worse, you know? Now here is where I wish they had added a shot. I wish we had a shot of Bruce sort of closing his eyes or bowing his head or something and taking a breath and then taking the kryptonite. 
Because as it is, as the way it plays right now, he's like, okay, Superman's gone evil, take this and, you know, kick the shit out of him. I wish they had had a shot of, that shows him stealing himself for what he's about to ask Terry to do. A shot that pays respect to the the great friendship that existed between him and Superman in, in Justice League Unlimited. And that shows that this is like the hardest thing he's ever had to do, is to is to condemn his friend to death. But we don't have that shot because when this aired, last we saw the relationship between the two of them, they were barely civil towards one another. But that's the way it goes. So that's the call part one. A lot of great action sequences and uh, a lot of cool new characters introduced. But like I said, uh, retroactively some some problems, some continuity problems develop, but we can hardly hold that against them. Thanks for listening.